The holidays are here, and each comes laden with meaning and memories. How might we as Christians keep the feast? What days are worth celebrating and why? Gather round and listen close. After all, tis the season. Well, welcome everyone. We are starting a new season, a new series in this podcast today called Tis the Season. It's going to be all about uh, a Christian perspective on the various holidays that really start now and move through the end of the year, and how Christians can meaningfully engage in those holidays in a way that honor the Lord. And so we've got all of the usual suspects here with us today, and their introductions will consist of them telling us their favorite candy, since today we're going to be talking about Halloween as kind of our Kickstarter to the Tis the Season series. So we've got in the uh, studio today Van Minter. Yeah, so favorite candy, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Mm, good choice. And we've also got Keith Lowry. Yeah, I'm going to go with Van's suggestion, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I think. And then we also have Ben Lowry. I like the candy that's wrapped and not on the floor. <laughs> so, so popcorn balls? Yeah, any really any candy that's wrapped and I didn't find on the floor is my favorite candy of the moment. I love that. I love that. And then I'm, I'm Kyle Wisdom, and my favorite's uh, definitely Gummy Bears. Uh, is my go-to. So we're talking about Halloween today, and uh, we started off with the single most controversial ha- uh, holiday of the calendar for the Christian uh, Christian world. Uh, I pretty found a pretty humorous uh, quote from uh, Russell Moore, who has uh, people who support and people who detract, but I liked this quote from him and said, an evangelical is a fundamentalist whose kids dress up for Halloween. <laughs> which I thought was a hilarious way to introduce the fact that for a lot of Christians, Halloween is kind of a perplexing date on the calendar in terms of how to engage, what to do, um, and really what a Christian perspective on it might be. Um, The problem is Halloween's not going away. I mean, 65% of people apparently celebrated Halloween in 2021, um, and we're currently spending about $10 billion a year on Halloween. And so it's definitely taken our culture by storm. It's been around for quite some time. For those of you that are a little curious about kind of Halloween as a historical phenomenon, um, it's got connections to the ancient pagan Celtic, Celtic, has anyone ever been able to sort that out? Uh, Festival of Samhain in pre-Christian Ireland, and then Pope Gregory III in the 8th century actually established All Saints Day on November the 1st as a way to honor the faithful dead of Christian martyrs and saints. And so this day at the time was referred to All Hallows, and the night before as All Hallows' Eve, which eventually becomes our Halloween. Uh, And the characteristics of this pagan festival eventually reach Ireland, um, and then it's brought over to America through Irish and non-English immigrant groups, and eventually was domesticated into sort of the child-centered, candy-doling holiday that we know now. So for, for those of us in the room, what are some of your experiences with Halloween, spooky season, the things that go bump in the night for you? How have you experienced that? You know, we, in my family growing up, we did some years where we celebrated Halloween and then we kind of stopped doing Halloween and then we've gone back and forth. Our family, you know, we dress our kids up and take them over to grandparents' neighborhoods and let them walk around and get candy. And we we avoid some of the gruesome sides of mm. modern Halloween as a family. 
but we 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 delight in the whimsy of dressing up as funny in funny costumes and letting our kids knock on strangers' doors. My so we took my daughter Josie trick or treating last year, and this was her first sort of conscious experience of trick or treating. She was three years old. She she had just turned three a couple months earlier. Um, and uh, no, she was about to turn three. I'm sorry. So, so she was just on the edge of consciousness. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, so we were taking her around. She was dressed. I can't remember what she dressed up as. My wife will be upset with me for that. But um, she was knocking on all these doors. And this one guy came to the door. was a, a kind elderly Asian man who was wearing like full on medical gear over his face and head. You know, clearly kind of still COVID conscious in his house. But he was also barefoot as he came to the door. And Josie looked at him and kind of thought for a second as she said, trick or treat. And he was handing out candy and she said, hey, I like your feet. <laughs> so, um, the, guy, the guy was kind of like, well, here's your candy. Get out of here. Oh, there you go. Uh, so anyway, that, I like that. Halloween is about feet to me now. There you go. The reason for the season. <laughs> yeah, it is the reason for the season. When I was growing up, um, uh, it was... I lived in New Mexico as a my until I was in second grade, and I don't really have a strong memory of Halloween. Kind of before that, I, I mean, I think we went trick or treating, and it was kind of a, you know, wander around the neighborhood and knock on doors and get candy. When we moved to the Northeast, there was sort of an amplified version of Halloween because what would happen is you would go trick or treating just like we did in New Mexico. On Halloween, but the day before Halloween, they called it Mischief Night, and and kids would kind of wander through the neighborhood and do mischief. And mischief really kind of boiled down to two things: uh, they would carry a bar of soap with them, and they would you could draw on glass with a bar of soap. And so you would oh. go up to people's house and you'd scribble soap on their windows. And then kids carried a bag of uh, corn with them, like feed corn, and they'd throw those at people's houses and it would rat tat 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 you know, kind of on the windows. And so this all went on the night before Halloween, what they call mischief night. And then Halloween, these kids that had made a mess of your windows would come by and expect you to be giving them candy, <laughs> to get candy the next day. And, um, and so that was sort of a, a, new, a new experience. But I have noticed that um, the age of participation in Halloween between when I was a child and now has really shot up in, <laughs> in the sense that a surprising number of people who are, you would not think would be out trick-or-treating, you know, I mean, they shaved before they left the house to go trick-or-treating, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> um, that's a little shocking, I think, to my sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we were in most of my childhood uh, before moving overseas was in Louisiana, and so we lived sort of in a um, a rural neighborhood. So um, I can remember not having my parents not escorting us. I mean, I guess we felt like it was a safer time then where your parents didn't have to go with you as as a child, and we would just knock on doors up and down the streets and. Uh, you were also six foot eight when you were in third grade. I was, so. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of an anomaly, so yeah. Um, but I can remember getting home and 
uh, sorting out all the candy that I just couldn't stand, like bit o honey, which the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the wrapper would be stuck to the candy. Oh. It was just pointless to try to eat the stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I sorted out all my chocolates that I liked and gave my dad the rest. And uh, it was uh, always my brother and I. It was always how much candy could could we get uh, to snack on for the rest or for the next few weeks. And uh, I would dress up as Casper. That was one of my favorite. Uh, Casper the Ghost. Well, that, that's what you call a minimal labor-intensive costume. It, it was. Throw a sheet my over mom, That's exactly what happened. My mom bought me the mask, and I put a sheet on, and I was good to go. You know? Yeah. But, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that, that was my childhood experience with Halloween. Uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit throughout this about uh, youth and stuff like that and yeah. what that turns into. But. Yeah, I... Uh, we always went to the harvest festivals and fall festivals as a kid at, you know, churches and in various, you know, parking lot type parties. I've actually never been trick or treating in my entire life. Oh well. Never never gone house to house looking for candy. Mainly because that just seems like a strange thing to do to your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> Knock on their door and ask for their sweet treats. Um My daughter as a matter of fact, Kyle, my daughter doesn't understand why we don't do it more often. Oh, well, there you go. She thinks neighbors' houses are just free game she, for she, she getting can, free candy. Yeah. She can come to our house anytime and ask for candy. She'll just and get pipe all up periodically. Wants. Let's go trick or treating. Yeah. You know? Like, listen, it worked out so well the last right. time. Why aren't we doing this more often? So, so I, I will say this Keith talked about the age limit getting a little higher for people mm-hmm. trick or treating. So when we moved to the neighborhood we now live in, uh, the first Halloween we had there with our girls, the first house on, the, on our street knocked on the door the guy had gone to either costco or sam's and bought i'm assuming you guys have seen these those gigantic hershey bars i mean i'm talking oh yeah maybe two feet wide kind of hershey bars and was handing one out to every kid that came to his door so when i saw (laughs) he's determined determined, yeah he's determined to win halloween i guess but when i saw that i was knocking on his door saying trick or treat so i got mine yeah yeah Yeah, for real golly so van sort of alluded to this um but as we're as we're looking at halloween we really want to kind of drill down to the question of why does halloween tend to be so popular like what what is it about halloween that our culture just seems to want to keep going back to again and again and again. Is it just the fact that we want kids to get free candy? Um, or do you think our culture needs something or wants something from a holiday like Halloween? I, I think what's appealing about Halloween is also, you know, in the best possible light, what's appealing about Halloween is also what's appealing about Christmas. And it's the pageantry of it. It's it's the fact that we've got this routine, this tradition every year of you know, decorations and the transformation of the ordinary into the extraordinary. And that's something that I think we we want to see. I think it's something that we delight in just as, as a culture. I think it's also just one of the, um, for, for us evangelicals to, to, to tag on to Russell Moore's quote, it's something that we evangelicals miss out on being in kind of a dry religious context without a lot mm-hmm. of pomp and circumstance. Um, we, we kind of, we, I think it wandering through that desert, we see the holidays as sort of, um, these little oases, Hmm. you know, that, that populate our, our religious wanderings and, and help. I think, I think it also just piques our imagination. These are times of year that the the imagination is allowed to soar in an unusual way. So I think those are the innocent good reasons why these holidays are, are impactful. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of amazing to me uh, that 
a culture like ours who prides itself on being secular and materialist and following the science absolutely cannot get enough of a night where we talk about ghosts and goblins and things that go bump in the night and the unexplainable aspects that, you know, the things that are supernatural. Uh, I think it just sort of highlights our cultures, whether we want to or not, we believe in something beyond the known. And we always want to find a way to sort of safely explore, safely tap into that supernatural unknown zone of what it means to be human. Um, and I think Halloween kind of gives us a way to sort of get that wiggle out every year in some sense. Yeah, I think in addition to that, um, you know, like I said, what I used to dress up as as a kid would either be Casper or my mom would uh, paint a mustache on my <laughs> upper lip and I'd be a cowboy going out, you know, to uh, knock on doors. But something, at least my experience, something changed. I mean, the costumes morphed from being just innocent characters to uh, – a little more scary and gruesome things. And and while that was kind of fun for me as a kid, I mean, from a distance, you kind of enjoy the scary, like, look at that, you know? Um, but when you get up close and see what's behind it all, mm. uh, and where we, I, and we'll, I know we'll get into this a little bit more today, uh, but, um, there, there truly is an obsession with wanting to know more about, um, uh, that curiosity of the scary or the supernatural, and and I think what we're going to find is when you see what's behind it, uh, it's it's not something to be enjoyed. In fact, it it can lead to some pretty dangerous stuff. Yeah, I think I think Halloween is in particular one of those holidays that has to be handled with care. You know, it's not that it's it's not necessarily that it's bad. Well, I'm speaking for myself here. It's not necessarily that Halloween itself is bad, but that we're as a society aren't equipped to handle it hmm. properly. And yeah. so and so I think that it's undergone to Van's point some changes in recent years, um, maybe going back a couple decades, that say more about our own heart and mind than it does about the holiday itself, you know? Hmm. So what we've made the holiday out to be in it. So anyway. Yeah. So uh I think because of the fact that Halloween seems to deal most particularly with the concepts uniquely in the holidays of things like death, things like darkness, things like evil, um, there's kind of that, that side to Halloween. How have you all seen Halloween change? Do you have any specifics you could think of or yeah, some I, general trends? I, I've seen two things, I think. Uh, on the one hand, it's sort of evolved from... Um, a partial emphasis on the spooky. I, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, there was this sort of spooky component to Halloween, but it wasn't sort of unalloyed spookiness. I mean, some people, you know, and even to this day, people wander around, you know, dressed like, you know, non-spooky characters, you know, hobos or, or whatever. Um, but I think it's evolved from kind of an interest in what's spooky to an interest in what's horrific, you know, and uh, catastrophic, even, um, and and weirdly, it's also evolved uh, to where there's. I mean, you see, you can read a lot of articles commenting on this. A lot of these Halloween costumes that are offered to girls, and as I said, there's this older contingent of people that are trick or treating, are sort of almost uh, 
lurid and and yeah. or uh, provocative and provocative and inappropriate, um, and that's sort of promoted as well. And yeah, there's so, a weird blending together of sexual and violent uh, um, depravity. Yeah, that's going so, on at Halloween. So I I happen to believe that there's a real place uh, for uh, spookiness and the uncanny in in developing sort of moral insights in literature. I think um, I, I was kind of reading about some of this this week, and uh, I came across this interesting article. Um, well, in, in terms of this moral insight, I mean, one quote that's famous from G.K. Chesterton is this, fairy tales don't tell children the dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. And so there's this sort of moral uh, direction to fairy tales. And this writer I was reading this week, who happens to be a headmaster at a local Christian school, said um, um, ghost stories are not merely about ghosts, just as fairy tales are not merely about fairies. There is a, a moral imagination component to a ghost story that's written with proper ends. And so I think there's a place for spookiness in, in learning about moral boundaries and consequences. Um, but that's not what's—we're not limited to that in terms of what's currently going on with Halloween. We're, we really—it's um, almost, in some ways, and you'll understand that why I use this word, it's almost a pornographic fascination with uh, the macabre and the, the maniacal. Yeah. that I think is doesn't point toward an ethical end, yeah. you know. Yeah, there's uh, and by the way, I would just plug one of our other podcast episodes if you're listening to this and would like a full-throated conversation in the particulars about ghost uh, a particular ghost story, listen to our episode in the Book Nook series on the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Um, you might get a kick out of that if you'd like to hear us talk about these things in particular about a particular story. I I'll I'll add this, you know, when I I think that our society is, we've, we've removed some of our most sacred moments from the home and the family. So birth is taken away out of the home and family and moved into the hospital. There's reasons for that, right? We understand this. Death is also one of those things that's been taken out of the home and family and moved into the hospital. Um, and so there's there was a time in human history where both of those things were common to human existence. And there was an opportunity, I think, given once a year in in the in this All Hallows Eve, to think back on those who had died and gone before us. Yeah. Death is a mystery. Death is kind of something spooky. The further we are removed from death as a real human experience, I think um, the the worse off we get when we when, 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 the worse off we are when we approach it in the way we deal with it. And so, right. like, we get a holiday like Halloween and we're not we're not sort of reflecting um, with religious piety on the reality of death, hmm. and even on those who've gone before us. But we're sort of now we're to the point where we're we're not just reflecting on death. We're actually reveling in things that cause death, yeah, encouraging, inflicting yeah. death. Yeah, yeah, that's a totally different change there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this there's a sobriety that comes. To a culture who's well acquainted with death as a reality, you know, when you when when death is something that you've experienced in in your life, 
you view it very differently than someone who maybe hasn't or maybe has been distanced from it. And so it can't become a cartoon or a caricature to you. And, you know, um, even in some of the older traditions of Christian celebrations of uh, All Saints Day and All Hallows Eve, the idea that All Saints Day was about celebrating the, the faithful departed who had gone before, All Hallows Eve was sort of a celebration of the defeat of those dark those dark things. And so you, you might be dressed up in something evil looking for the purpose of saying these are the things that are defeated by the day that proceeds. You know, that all those who are faithfully departed are not def- are not overcome by this darkness. This darkness is overcome by these faithful departed and by the Christ who they follow. Similar to you were talking about, Keith, and this idea of there being a moral instinct. I, I think we've lost that. I think it's become, to your point, much more about glorifying rather than maybe moralizing the darkness. I think I, I, you kind of alluded to this in your comments there. I think there's... Um I think there's a lot of illumination that comes from sort of thinking about what it is that we're entertained by. Hmm. Um, you know, I think um, if you've—I'm I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about my own personal history, but let's just say I've been—well, uh, I tell people I'm an involuntary witness to God's grace and the fortifying power of faith. I mean, that's quoting— uh, Whitaker Chambers. So you're a Calvinist? No, no. no I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I have had my nose rubbed into some things involuntarily that I would not have expected in my life. And I have some up close and personal experience with the most uh, pathological uh, lives and circumstances. And I think once you've sort of had to live through that, um, a lot of what comes across mass media as entertainment is no longer entertaining anymore mm. because it's, um, you know, the personal cost and it's, and while they offer this stuff up as something that's sort of titillating and, and fascinating, I think it's titillating and fascinating and entertaining to people who, who, who look at it from a distance, but not have had, have not had to deal with the grisly, uh, reality and and the loss that that these things entail, and so I think um, what entertains us is telling. Yeah. I, I think even as a personal sort of gut check about where you are and how you're doing, uh, you you should take a hard look at what it is that you find entertaining and 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 um, something you'd like to focus on, because I think yeah. that tells a tale yes. about where we're at. So I, I didn't really do a whole lot of Halloween stuff growing up, but one of the, probably my deepest dive into the Halloween spirit, so to speak, was when I was in college. I was, I was living in an apartment with some guys, and one of my roommates was absolutely enthralled by horror movies. And I never really died, and I, I'm a cinema guy, I'm a movie guy, and so I was like, this is a whole genre of movies I've never seen. And so, you know, as a 20-something, you sort of foolishly test your mettle in some of these arenas. And so I sort of took a deep dive with, with this friend of mine into his collection of horror movies. And there were some of them that maintained, to, to what we said before, some of this moral lens, and they were trying to say something about humans, you know, and they they portrayed the the dark things going on with some level of... of uh, moral center, but there were some that truly shocked me, truly threw me for a loop. And it wasn't until, to your point, Keith, I had 
gone deep enough down that rabbit hole and had watched some things <laughs> to this day I'll, I'll say I'll regret um, that depicted depravity and violence and uh, and wickedness. I, I sort of woke up, you know, sort of like the prodigal son does and looks around and goes, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> like why, why am I allowing this to be something I consider entertaining? Uh, but it took being shocked and and I fear that many people are waiting to be shocked and that's a, that's a dangerous place to put oneself when you're trying to you know deal with darkness and, and evil. Yeah, so as a kid, I caught a glimpse of uh, the first uh, Halloween movie. Um, and so you have uh, what's his name Michael uh, is it My- Jordan. Michael? Myers, my, Michael Jordan, <laughs> Michael, Michael Jordan, Dunking on Mike, people, Mike it just Myers. freaked me out. Yeah, yeah it's, that's scary, <laughs> terrifying. No, I and so I just happened to catch this clip as a kid of him walking into this house, and basically the the premise of the movie: any door that's unlocked, he's coming in with a knife and he's going to kill you. And uh, I remember just being terrified. Uh, by what I was seeing, along with the music that accompanied this, I mean, I was petrified, scared the life out of me. And um, and as Ben alluded to earlier, I mean, these are the things that we celebrate today. And so I can't be entertained by something that depicts reality in the world that we live in. Yeah. So let's maybe yeah. let's maybe ask this question. Why would our culture dive into celebrating some of the things we're talking about? What What do you think has changed in the heart of our culture that wants to celebrate some of these so, things? I, I was thinking about this exact question, Kyle, as you guys were reflecting on entertainment and um, what that might say about us. We're, we're doing a study on Wednesday nights at our church on the Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. And one of the things that this book highlights is that— uh, the the greatest authority for determining truth and even shaping reality is the inner self, or what he calls expressive individualism. It occurs to me as we're talking that Halloween is the single holiday that gives the greatest platform for expressive individualism, for self-expression. You dress up as the kind of thing that you love. And so that may that may speak to why our culture loves Halloween, why it's becoming one of the greatest economic um, forces of the of the calendar year behind Christmas only, I think, and barely behind Christmas, if I'm right about those stats. It's definitely within the top five. Yeah, I it's up there. It's it's way up there. Super Bowl also has some. Yeah. Um, that tells us something about our culture as well. But but this idea of self expression and so you know, when we see the culture shifting from these cute sort of snaggletooth pumpkin head costumes and these little ghosts and, you know, wart-nosed goofy witches on broomsticks and things like this to people walking around with demented, you know, grotesque demon heads with uh, like human appendages in bags walking around. You know, I mean, like this is a demonic, murderous um, cannibalistic. I mean, this is this is grotesque. I I actually suspect, kind of to your comment, pops about what entertainment exposes about us. We think of a costume as something that covers us on the outside. I think the costumes are something of an apocalypse. Hmm. Costumes are something actually of a revealing about what is at the heart of our culture. 
And if you stand back and just look at the landscape of the costumes that people buy and put on, like visit your local spirit Halloween store. Actually, don't. Don't do that. But if you were, right, if you were to do that, I think you would see a revealing of the heart of our culture that is demonic um, and, and given to great depravity. Yeah. in violence and sexuality and all of those things. Yeah, so I think two of the things that I've noticed, specifically with how we deal with um, like kids and youth dealing with Halloween, I think adults dealing with Halloween has just gotten off the deep end in a lot of ways. I think specifically with, with children or with youth, the two areas I see, I've seen it change is uh, it's, it's intentionally transgressive, meaning that the point of Halloween celebration for youth and for kids now is less about dressing up as a princess, sort of, hey, look at this cool costume that I bought, and more of, can you find a costume that intentionally pushes a boundary, whether it's on the sexual side of things or on the gore side of things or on the scary side of things. The goal is to push a boundary because this is like a day we've set aside to say, hey, we really don't believe in these boundaries. Let's give you a chance to push those boundaries. The entertainment industry of shock and and offense. Yeah, and because I think to your point, I think to Carl Truman's point in his book, uh, we actually don't believe those are moral boundaries. We believe they're really just boundaries of taste. Yeah, I, I think to your point, even about horror movies, we see yeah. this in our culture. We see um, a deliberate, uh, what would I say, um, undoing of the light into darkness. And so we'll take something that we that is good, like a baby or a mother or a religious institution, like maybe a cross or a nun or something. Like these are what our culture esteems as pure, should be pure. But then at at Halloween, these are exactly the things that become the most demented and deranged and and dark. And so it's the turning of light into darkness that is kind of horrifying. And and I think that leads really well into the second thing, which is uh, a devaluing of innocence. That there was a time when we all sort of knew the reason we let kids wander around in their costumes is because they just get to sort of be kids Mm -hmm. in a unique way on Halloween. And I think now the emphasis is upon actually a removal of innocence, that actually there, we think there's value culturally now in being desensitized to certain things, yeah. that that makes you more, I don't know, mature or whatever. Um, we, we actually believe it's bad to be sheltered away from dark and evil things. I, I walked through a spirit Halloween store once, just speaking of spirit Halloween, once. Um, and, uh, well, I was there, I guess I, I thought I was looking for some costume for Abe at the time. He was a little guy and I thought, well, maybe I could, I think he wanted, I can't remember, wanted to be a pirate that year for Halloween or something. So I was going to go get him a pirate costume. And I figured the spirit Halloween store might have a great supply of these kind of things. So I walked in, I'm walking around this store and there was another family in the store and they had this small, had a toddler with them. Well, if you've, if you've never been in one of these spirit Halloween stores, um, you know, and and please don't go. I mean, it's it's terrible. They are dark, dark places. There are horrifying statues, robotic animatronic statues in this place that are meant to terrify. I was watching this family walk around the store. This this they had just come in the the door, and this toddler saw one of these grisly, grotesque statues, these demonic things, and just started to scream panic. I mean, like it wasn't. Ah, oh, spooky. Oh, no. It was like true, genuine horror in this little toddler's. And I'm just thinking, as a dad, if I hear my child make that cry, I am getting him or her out of that circumstance as fast as I possibly can. 
and there's these, you know, uncles, aunts, parents laughing at this toddler in the store. So, Kyle, to your point about innocence, we, we even, it's not just that the adults go in for this stuff. We impose all of this on our kids and rob from them their own innocence in the process. You know, the other thing I've noticed about our culture's obsession with the grotesque and just the demonic kind of thing is it seems like it used to be if, if these movies early on as they were being made, good would ultimately triumph in the end. You kill the bad guy, they're done. But now it's evil wins the day, um, the good mm-hmm. suffer and die, and and there is no hope for redemption, it seems. So you take a Halloween movie, for example. I mean, they've probably made about 20 of these movies since then because the guy never dies. <laughs> you know, It's like we yeah. think he's done and here he's back. And so there's this obsession with, um, you know, allowing evil to have the final word. And the resurrection non- of evil. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, sort of a direct flipping of the script that I was talking about before where All Hallows' Eve was sort of designed as the, the – uh, the defeat parade, so to speak, of all the things that are dark and evil, and then there, when when morning came, it would give way to the victory of the light. And to your point, it's sort of been completely reversed. Um, we actually are pessimistic now that there is such a thing as light that can defeat darkness, really in any form. Uh, one of the other things that I've noticed too is we've become not only more and more enamored with darkness, we've become more and more enamored with the the forces behind that darkness. So whether it's uh, the spiritual beings of, that w- we might refer to in the Christian tradition as demons, or whether it's uh, spirituality in the form of the rise of uh, witchcraft and paganism, like outright paganism. This is something our culture has become completely enamored with at this point. So, so I, I um, some time ago, you know, I've got a bunch of grandkids, and so I spend some amount of my life rolling around the floor and watching children's television and uh it's a it's a wasteland i mean it by is, himself yeah all by myself it's a it's a it's a um i i, I finally really just kind of got fed up with it because um it is uh uh it is it is it does not it is never aspirational it is instructional and and high pressure to socially conform uh, to expect the virtue a social norm. is counting or yeah, something. Yeah, it's counting yeah. or being nice to the new kid in school or whatever, which is well, and I mean that's fine as far as it goes. But there's never any, uh, you know, aspirational challenge to exhibit courage or um, confront evil on the part of children. And but if you look at children's television from, you know, a generation ago, that was sort of. In, inherent in a lot of the uh, the morality tales. And so I was going to read, so there's a, weirdly enough, there are Christian writers who specialized in ghost stories. And uh, one of them is a guy named Russell Kirk, who, uh, he died, I don't know, in the late 90s probably. Um, weirdly enough, this guy was the father of American conservative, he, conservatism. He, he laid the groundwork in the 50s for what became the politically conservative uh, sort of movement in in America, and it was rooted in his doctoral dissertation that he did at St Andrews in Scotland. Uh, it was kind of a biography of the political thought of um, Edmund Burke. Anyway, so but he also, as a sideline, because he was just a, kind of a eclectic writer, he wrote ghost stories. It's a man of letters. Yeah, 
And uh, and so this is I I at the back he wrote a collection an anthology called Ancestral Shadows and at the back of his book and collection of ghost stories Ancestral Shadows is a is an essay he wrote called A Cautionary Note on the Ghostly Tale and he has a bunch of interesting things to say and he's a he comes at this from a Catholic perspective he was a very committed and engaged uh, Catholic thinker and writer. Anyway, but he says some important things here. He says, all important literature has some ethical end. And um, and he means, among other things, he says, a good ghost story must have for its kernel some clear premise about the character of human existence, some theological premise. And I think this is, it's important for Christians to think better about literature and entertainment in this regard, because I think we need to understand, I think ghost stories can have a role to play in pointing us toward the good and the right and the just, but um, but that's not necessarily the case, and it's a function of what, um, what, what the ethical end of the story is that's being told. And I think it's, um, this is, I think, what's lost in the same way that in children's, to get back to my original point, in the same way that there's, the children's programming has lost a core aspirational ethical dimension. That's true with things like Halloween and horror movies, which is that uh, they've, they've, they've lost the memory that something important can be said, and they've become just a celebration of themselves and the genre and the the evil that used to animate a reflection on the good now just becomes a, uh, a, a something to celebrate in its own right. Well, I think on the other side of this horror coin is, and this this has bearing on what you just talked about, um, is is Kyle? You've made this point before about children's movies. A lot of Disney movies these days don't have a villain. Yeah. And so the villain is conflict at some point. You know. So like on the one extreme. We protect kids from any idea that there might be such a thing as a villain in the world. Everybody's good, hmm. right, at, at heart. Right. Then on the other extreme, we parade in the most horrific costumes and celebrate clear villainy, but also kind of as good. Right. Right? And so yeah. there, there's no true villain. And I think this highlights something that you're bringing up. There is a place for the ghost story. There's a place in our storytelling for the dark and the spooky and the frightening, but only to the extent that they are understood to be the villain. So, right. so we might be surprising some of our listeners here with this idea, but let's maybe unpack that a bit. What do you think might be some of the benefits of a Christian uh, approach to horror or ghost stories or... Uh, s- things that go bump in the night. What What do you think some of those Christian contributions might be? Well, there's some scary things in Scripture. Mm. Um, you know, God even warns Cain in the beginning that sin is crouching at his door, and its desire is to have him. God captures Cain's imagination mm. with this image of this crouching terror at the door who wants to possess him, you know? Yeah. That's a spooky—I mean, God kind of gives him something like a ghost story, something to haunt his imagination. And ultimately, Cain 
botches it, right? He yeah. kills his brother. He doesn't listen to the ghost story. He doesn't listen yeah. to the to what God tells him. He doesn't heed the image that God gives him. Yeah. Um, there's also, you know, what is this? Is, isn't this in Peter's writing that uh, the devil is, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? There are monsters, and there are things to be scared of in the world. Yeah. Well, there's talk of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the eternal lake of fire. I mean, those are our scary images. Um, and I think that um, maybe uh, one of the things that we are seeing is with a society that wants to push God farther and farther away, um, if there is power to be had or uh, to be experienced in some alternative way, there's a draw there then to the dark side, so to speak. I can remember in, I guess it was the 80s that Dungeons and Dragons came on the scene and people really got into that. It's something I never played. I don't even know how it's played. But I know there was a lot of pushback, you know, from the Christian community about the door that that opens to uh, being more and more curious about the demonic and things of that nature. For me, probably the, the farthest I ever went as a child was, um, um, I say a child, uh, late elementary, early junior high, was hearing my neighbor friends talk about, have you ever done a seance? And, uh, and I said, what is that? And so we all got in a circle, and we're supposed to close our eyes. And somebody laid in the middle of our circle, and we were supposed to envision a train track you know, a train running over this person. And so we keep telling ourselves this over and over. And when we open our eyes, supposedly what we're going to see is a train, a train track on the stomach of this, of this kid. I mean, and so we were sort of psyching ourselves out and seeing this, Oh, I see it. I see it scaring ourselves to death as little kids. Right. But all I'm trying to say is you get into that because curiosity, you think is kind of fun, but the, the farther you go down that path, you're going to be introduced to some things that really, surely do not have your best interest in mind. There is an enemy out there that Scripture talks about that is looking to lure you and deceive you into thinking that it's okay to dabble in these things. And um, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, there's, there's this idea that um, it's important to know the wolf is there and the wolf might be coming, but you don't make the wolf a plaything. Um, yeah. li- like the boy who cries wolf. He cries wolf, and everyone comes running. Ah, oh, so funny. He cries wolf again. Everyone comes running. Ah, oh, so funny. He cries wolf again when the wolf does show up, and everyone's been desensitized yeah. to, to to the to the problem itself. Yeah, and there's a there's there's a Christian tradition. I think one of the probably the more familiar would be C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, which are Christian uh, portraits of darkness. They sort of take the opportunity to correctly portray what darkness really looks like and what darkness is really about and how one might understand it in a Christian perspective. And Yeah, and I, I, think, I think one of the value propositions of the, the genre can be that it cultivates a sensibility for the supernatural, especially in a, in a very materialist Society. I mean, we recently, the four of us, plus Jeremy, did a podcast on The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, right? And one of the things that that whole story talks about is it talks about this sort of present, alive wakefulness to the supernatural among the people in that, in that community. And this is the point that um, 
Russell Kirk makes in his essay on the ghostly tale. He says, um, literary naturalism is not the only path to the apprehension of reality. Um, Anthony Esselin, in his book, Sex in the Unreal City, uh, tells this story. He says, when my daughter was young, she would often be asked, not usually by fellow homeschoolers, why she kept reading The Lord of the Rings. I told her to reply, because I want to know what's going on in the world. And there's this very real, you know, if, if the supernatural is real, then the material world cannot explain everything uh, that, that there is that needs to be known. And so this other writer um, that I was reading, Robert Woods, who wrote this essay on ghost stories, he says, ghost stories as a genre affirm what most of us know, and that is the truth, that our physical senses are not capable of apprehending all that was, is, or will be. Yeah. And so I think this general, in a materialist world where everyone's convinced that the material world is all that there is or was, uh, it, it's it's helpful to cultivate a supernaturalist sensibility in, in the thinking of people. Yeah, one of the things I, I learned to draw a line on when I'm when I'm watching movies, especially scary movies, because I do from time to time find a, a good spooky film to really you know scratch a particular itch and 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 teach you something interesting about the world. One of the lines I drew though was that uh, I don't watch uh, movies of demons in them anymore. I don't I don't watch films that portray that particular world, and it's not even because I don't believe that they're true. Some of them have some interesting things to say. I don't watch them because they're untrue in this regard. They make the demon out to be something to be played with or entertaining. And and I actually believe those guys are real and they're horrifying and they're terrible and they cause great destruction in the lives of actual humans. So I don't watch movies about them um, because I think we can make something a plaything by the way we describe it. Um, good literature doesn't do that. I mean, you've got stories like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that are... Uh, scary stories but they're trying to describe something in truthful terms uh, about what the devil even inside the human looks like frankenstein yeah is another great example of that. i i think stories are good or bad they're they're either uh, virtuous or non-virtuous uh, by the measure of how they use the archetypes mm. the universal archetypes there is a universal archetype for the virtuous hero there's a universal archetype for the villain as well. Yeah. And when we play fast and loose with those archetypes, I think a story becomes not good. It yeah. becomes not helpful. When stories usher us toward the truth, the stories, by the way, Christians, I think evangelical Christians in particular are bad about this because we make stories into preachers. Hmm. Stories should not be preachers. Stories should be ushers. They should hmm. they should short sort of usher us toward the truth, point us toward the truth. But they should stop short of spelling it out, and I think right. evangelicals are bad about just spelling it out. We've, yeah. We haven't told a good story. C.S. Lewis would talk about this. He said, good writers don't tell you to be afraid. They provide a description that scares you. Well, yeah. this is right. what, I, what I want to say about um, about the stories we tell today. You've got some, like, for instance, there's a great, a great story. Disney made a movie about this way back when on Sleeping Beauty. And and the villain in, of the movie is Maleficent, right? And and she's she's an archetype for evil. The hero of the movie is the prince, who's an archetype for the virtuous hero, who is armed with, I think, the sword of truth and the shield of faith. He's got a cross on it. Right, it's got a cross on it. Or is it the shield of truth, the shield of hope? 
um, and the sword of truth. Anyway, he's he's armed with virtue, in, in essence, and defended by virtue. And he's going against this dragon, this evil sorceress witch. Well, they've redone this now, and Maleficent is actually the sympathetic hero right. of the story. And the and the prince is just some dope, you know? Like, he's not really someone to be cared about or aspire yeah. to at all. So, I, in other words, I, th- I think even though you may sort of like the Maleficent remaking of that movie, it's, it's actually arguably, qualitatively, a bad story. Similar things are happening in the realm of uh, vampire stories. So vampires have it occupied a very particular archetype because they are the, the, the archetype of an attractive, predatory evil. And there are stories that go back a long time in multiple cultures about what the vampire is and what it's about, you know. And it's about the idea that you have to invite a vampire in. There's a moral lesson in that, right? The idea that the vampire goes after the young impressionable uh, woman in the house when the other people aren't watching. You know, there's a, a moral lesson in those things. He really just wants to consume her, right? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So to, to these stories have archetypes for a reason. Now we take these archetypes and we turn them into uh, misunderstood characters yeah. or people whose desires they just can't help, right? right? This is the new, the new vampire. And so to your point, we take evil and we turn it into something we sympathize with instead of something we go... No, this is a cautionary tale. Yeah, it used to be vampire movies. If you hold the cross up, the vampire's mm-hmm. gonna run in horror. Now you hold it up, they laugh at it and just, you know, either take it from you or yeah. crush it. So this depiction of evil triumphing over good, I mean that's that's the mess of being portrayed. That's why I don't watch uh, uh, you know, the Don what is it, the chicken in uh, in Washington Don Knotts movie? The ghost of Mr. Chicken. Uh, yeah. I just can't watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. too much, too much for you. Yeah, too yeah. Well, I, I think this is also probably why today, Kyle, to your point, we see a lot more sympathetic characters than we do actual heroes in mm, stories. Yeah. People that we think we can sympathize with. We want to see weakness in people that we can sympathize with because we don't have a lot of patience for the hero. Well, in our society. this is this is the elimination of anything aspirational. Right. We 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 don't have a shared understanding of what the good is and so we can't aspire to it right we have to just say you know and this fits with the whole study we're doing uh on a strange new world that it's all about me yeah right and my own inner life and so what i want is other people like me Mm -hmm. in the story not something that i should aspire to that's better than i am right and specifically not just simply the acknowledgement of one's own darkness but the celebration of one's own darkness, that we actually look to characters in movies and stories. We look at vampires and we go, I see something in them that's like me, so I'm going to dress up in Halloween as a vampire because I feel like that. Yeah. It, I can celebrate my vices rather than my virtues. I don't know if you guys remember this, but um, when The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe hit theaters, um, there we had been on this trend as far as movies being made that uh, – I'd read this article, movie makers were at the very least seeking PG-13 ratings because the thinking was in Hollywood that nobody wants to go see a PG movie that's void of just all profanity or gets worse. So they were at least seeking PG-13 or R status because that's what would attract somebody to come. And so when Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe hit, I mean, it resonated with people and it said something to Hollywood. I remember the articles that came out afterward. They were saying, if Hollywood doesn't learn a lesson from this, because it just, I mean, it brought in big money. 
and there was something that drew people to the fact that there was something aspirational about what was being communicated in this in this film. And I, I just thought, man, it, deep within us, I mean, uh, I know people in their lost condition maybe aren't necessarily drawn to it, but it it, it, it there is something that can draw and convict the heart. And so I think people were just uh, taken to that movie uh, quite a bit because of what it stood for and what it represented. I mean, good yeah. does have well, an impact. Well, in that one, what's interesting is the witch is in white. And so there is a there, there's there's even a lesson in that that the witch is yeah. the first person they meet, and she is attractive, yeah. and it's the 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 villainous character, so to speak, Edmund in that story is the one who's taken in by the attraction of evil, and says maybe she's the good guy, and Lewis says children are prone to this. Children are prone to looking at the evil and being attracted enough to it that they believe it's lies. And the story of the heroes in that is convincing them, no, they're actually evil when they unveil themselves to you. Which is why, as an adult Christian discerning view of entertainment, is the ability to distinguish between the whether the message of the story is true. Now, to Ben's point about we don't want these things to be didactic necessarily, it doesn't have to, it doesn't come out and say, and here's what you should think about the moral of this story. It, the, the moral is in the story, but as, as Christians, we need to be much shrewder, I think, about discerning whether the moral that's being presented is actually true, and whether it, whether it highlights things that are true about the nature of our existence, or whether it tells us falsehood. Profane words or naked people are in a movie. I'm against profane words and naked people in movies. But that, uh, it can have none of those things and still be false and still be subversive to Christian right. thought. Right. A good story teaches, a good Christian story especially, teaches a moral instinct, not just simply a moral lesson. Intuition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So uh, discerning parents want to know, right? So we're, we're about to get to Halloween. We're about to get to uh, the time when uh, the fundamentalists have to decide whether their kids are going to dress up for Halloween. So what advice might we give uh, around the circle here for how should a Christian engage in, so to speak, the spooky season? around October. I, I've seen a few different good sort of thoughtful Christian reactions or responses to the Halloween uh, cultural phenomenon. One of them being, you know, if you don't have kids in your house, don't just be the curmudgeon on the street with your lights out who doesn't give out candy. Give out candy and maybe bless them with something good. You know, I have know some people who print out little scripture tags and tie it to the candy. And I know that's cliche and kind of corny and people laugh about that. As a, as a Christian cliche, but but it may also be something that points someone toward the light, and so you could look mm. for ways to redeem the, 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 the darkness of that moment. One other re- response I've seen is um, families who just avoid it altogether, and they, they go in the opposite direction, and that may be what your family decides to do. Another option would be dress your kids up as heroes mm. to, that, that go out into the night to face down the villains. You know, I mean, there's going to be a, a lot of villains out there on the streets, trick or treating around, doing spooky stuff. Maybe your child dresses up as a knight in shining armor, or hmm. um, a you worship know, director. A worship director. Yeah, maybe you're. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Jeremy's pumping his fist in victory right now. Yeah. I don't know. So th- th- those might be a couple different options. Hmm. I would also say in our house, we put a cap on how old the child can be hmm. in order to to do the trick or treating thing. Um, in our house, it was 10. Like once you got to double digits, <laughs> you probably didn't need to be knocking on people's doors asking for candy anymore. Um, 
So you might you might think about that. Is it age appropriate? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that um, whatever you do, make sure that you're distinguishing between celebrating what's dark and identifying what's dark. I think identifying it for what it is 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 fine. I think celebrating it and identifying with it or encouraging anyone to identify with it is not a good thing. And so I think making clear distinctions about what you're uh, pointing to and what you're aspiring to are, are, are two different things and important to make. Yeah. And uh, just to add to what both guys have already said, I, I think as a church, you know, our harvest festival is something that's a nice alternative. It's a wholesome environment where uh, we don't celebrate um, the gore or um, try to scare little kids uh, or anything of that nature. But uh, it's just a fun time of celebration and people get to dress up in more heroes or little girls as princesses and boys as just superheroes. Goof, goofy stuff or something. Goofy stuff, you know, yeah. yeah. Just a fun time. And I, I, and I think what we've seen is a neighborhood, a community that really appreciates that alternative because it's they also see it as something safe which is not something we can say is true anymore like i said when i was younger i felt maybe from my parents perspective even though stuff still happened uh it seemed to be a safer time but in the world we live in today and you have things that are glorified that should not be glorified people tend to act on that kind of stuff and um you know so an alternative that provides a, a safer environment is something i think that people really are drawn to yeah and i think too emphasizing as christians the reality that darkness gets defeated Mm -hmm. um that evil ultimately does not have the last word over us or over the world that we see um and then ultimately in christ we find redemption out of all of these things and so whatever we do in dealing with the dark or even refusing to let the dark corrupt us in certain forms and certain fashions always learning that uh, we're on the winning team, right? So send those kids, those kids out with their swords in their hands and their flashlights yeah. uh, for, for, uh, for Halloween. Well, this is going to be part of a huge series uh, that we're doing called "Tis the Season." Like we said before, this is going to be about all the different holidays on the calendar coming up over the next several months. And so we hope that you'll get to spend some uh, some good time with us learning about how to be more Christian in the celebration of your holidays. And so we look forward to you joining us again for that. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.